0: This is the Disciple Makers podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. And our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we jump into the episode for today, I wanted you to know about the Discipleship.org Collective. This is an online community for disciples and disciple makers. You can get free access to this collective with all its webinars, seminars, eBooks, courses, and even personal and church disciple making assessments. It's a community, so you have the opportunity also to connect with other disciple makers. You might also be interested to know that there is a premium access option as well, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders. Check this out at discipleship.org/collective and sign up for free. Go to discipleship.org/collective to get your free membership with the discipleship.org collective. Today we're featuring a main session talk from the National Disciple Making Forum. The theme for the year this was recorded was King Jesus, and the talk was called "Leaving Cultural Christianity," featuring Dave Clayton, Brooke Hempel, Shadonke Johnson and Jim Putman with Bobby Harrington as the host. Enjoy.
1: You've come to a place where we believe that the greatest reality on planet Earth is to be a disciple of King Jesus. And the greatest mission that a human being or a church or a ministry could ever have is to make disciples of King Jesus. And we're here in a culture that is rapidly watching the disintegration of traditional Christianity in all of its forms, and the cry of our culture, almost like the blood or the ground crying out in the book of Genesis after Cain and Abel, the cry of our culture is, show us disciples who make disciples to renew our churches and the people of God. So I'm up here wearing a shirt that says Disciple Maker because I can't think of a better mission to give our lives to. And I know that that's why you're here as well. So welcome. Thank you to each and every one of you who have made the time and spent the money to join us. Over the next two days, you're going to have an opportunity to hear about how we've got to forsake this cultural consumeristic Christianity. We've got to reclaim the mandate that King Jesus has given to us, which we'll do this afternoon before supper time, and then tomorrow, before we all leave at two o'clock. We're going to invite every one of us to come forward and surrender, not only to King Jesus, but to his final command given to each one of us. Between now and then, we're gonna have three main stage sessions. We're going to have 75 teaching opportunities throughout this building, with 25 of leading disciple-making organizations in this country. So I'm really grateful to you, God, that, Lord God, you've given us this opportunity, we pray and ask that we would be good stewards of it. Would you bow with me, please? Kind God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for your glory and honor, as we exalt Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, have your way with us, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
2: Good morning. How are you? He's doing good this morning. You know, several weeks ago, our next door neighbor, they were throwing a birthday party for their four-year-old son. And so they rented out this bounce house just a few miles away from the place where we're at this morning, not far from here. And we showed up there in the afternoon, and if you've ever been to a bounce house in the middle of the fall on a Saturday afternoon, you know it's just this rotating door of children birthday parties. And so our group is rolling in for this birthday party, and as we're rolling in, there's another group that's preparing to leave, and you see the parents, they're frazzled, and they're all on their phones, and they're trying to mind their business, and their kids are putting on their shoes and doing their things. And then there's this, this moment where a group of parents come out after the birthday party that had just finished And they're holding all of these little goodie bags that had just been given to their kids. And so they're holding the goodie bags as their kids are trying to get dressed and and to leave. And I love this moment because I hear over here one of the dads say, hey, is there any good candy in these bags that we're holding? And they started doing what all of us do the day after Halloween. You start raiding the bags, you know. And so these dads are raiding the bags looking for candy. And I'll never forget just overhearing this one uh, simple statement that one of the dads made. He opened up this little... Goodie bag that he's holding on for his kids, and he says, This thing smells like church. And I thought, What? <laughs> All of a sudden, my ears just kind of perked up, and the and the friends in the group they thought the same thing. Like smells like church. Like, what do you mean? And all of a sudden, all of these dads are smelling these goodie bags, just like you do those scratch and sniff stickers or those scented markers. They're smelling the bags. Like, what do you mean it smells like church? And one of the guys says, Yeah, it's kind of like old and musty. And another guy in the group trying to be funny, he's like, and irrelevant. It smells like irrelevance, you know. And and they're all laughing. But there's this moment where the the father who had started the whole conversation was really sincere. And he said, no, it actually, it smells like church. There's something about this bag that reminds me of the smell of that Bible I had when I was a kid. And it reminds me of that little room I sat in and heard... You know, those Old Testament stories, and all of a sudden they start having these conversations right here in the middle of this bounce house lobby as they're waiting on their kids. They start talking about church, and it was so fascinating listening to these parents in their early to mid-30s discuss their experience in church. And here's what was so uh, eye-opening to me as I was listening to them talk. Several things began to emerge. Number one is that all of them had some sort of distant memory of church. Everyone in that circle had some sort of personal moment where they had been in a church setting. The second thing that I noticed was not just that they had distant memories, but that most of those memories were fairly pleasant. Just listening to them talk openly, just about that time and what was happening and kind of what they missed. But the thing that struck me most was as a Kept having this impromptu conversation of faith, although they had personal memories, and although so many of them were good, none of them seemed to believe that church had a place in their present story. And I was sitting there in the midst of this lobby of a kid's birthday party, going, Man, isn't this a picture of the moment we find ourselves in? We live we live in a world where a generation is growing up and they're familiar with the language of the kingdom. They're familiar with some of the stories, they're familiar with some of the rituals, they're familiar with some of the rhythms, they're even familiar with their understanding of some of the rules. What's fascinating when we talk to people who are familiar with the kingdom is a lot of them would say they're still interested in the fruit of that kingdom, you know, listening to them talk that day, like in the context of this lobby at a kid's birthday party, man, they're still interested in things like love and joy and peace and kindness. They want their kids to be good, contributing citizens in the world all around. These are things that they're interested in. We live in a culture that is interested in the kingdom. They're just not sure they like the king. They want the fruit of the kingdom. They just don't know if they want the king. And I believe this is the root challenge of cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is what happens when a culture is familiar with the language and the rhythms and the habits of the kingdom, but they don't know the king. It's primarily not a breakdown in ritual or religious practice, although those things come with the territory. It's primarily a disintegration of relationship with the one that spoke them into being. And and, and it's sometimes easy in a place like this to divorce our hearts from the reality of what it is that we're actually talking about. And what we're talking about is kids that have gone missing from the house of the father. remember years ago, one of my good friends, his son went missing for five hours. And we learned in that moment what we always assumed, assumed to be true, and that is when a kid goes missing, normal people go looking. And this conversation around cultural Christianity, I think we're finding ourselves in a moment much like the one described in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. Look at it with me real quickly. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you, but you should because this is a disciple-making forum. <laughs> Judges 2, verse 10 says, after that... After that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Who's that whole generation? It's the generation of Joshua and Caleb, the generation that had stood on the edge of the promised land. They had watched what happened when the generation before them had forfeited what God had called them into. And Joshua said, not on our watch. We're going to step in. And they saw God do all sorts of amazing things. But it's crazy what comes up in the wake of that. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, Another generation grew up, listen to this, who neither knew the Lord. Who neither knew the Lord. Or what have you done for Israel? Another generation rose up that neither knew the Lord. And I'm like, God, how is this even possible how is it possible to be raised in, in, in the shadow of what God was doing through the lives of Joshua and Caleb and not know the Lord? And I don't want to make too many assumptions and I don't want to throw any stones, but I go, man, have you ever noticed how easy it is to be so busy in ministry, winning the battles out there that we miss the battles on the home front? After that, a whole generation raised up that neither knew the Lord. This is the challenge of cultural Christianity. Christianity. Not if they know the language or the rhythms, not just what they're doing on the weekends. We have an entire generation of people who are much like the older brother in Luke 15. They've spent a long time in the Father's house, but they have no idea what his heart is like. They have no idea what his heart is like. It's not just pervasive out there in the culture, it's in this room. It's affecting some of your leadership teams. It's affecting some of your marriages. It's affecting some of your children. The pervasive effects of cultural Christianity is eroding even our ability to understand the invitation of King Jesus. And so the question is, on on the front end of our time together, what does it look like to leave behind a a kind of a, a, a shadowy form of Christianity and to step into the robust vision that Jesus has called us to? What does it look like to move beyond this place where churches are simply entertainment factories, where we gather people together on the weekends and we tell them old stories of what life used to be like when God was here? What if instead the church became a disciple-making hub where we formed resilient disciples of Jesus that would not only hold on to their faith, but would advance the faith in the next generation to come? See, we want to be like the people of Issachar. We don't just want to understand the times. We want to know what needs to be done. And so over the course of the next few minutes, we're going to talk about, okay, what is happening? And then our goal is to leave with, and then what needs to be done. I'll end with this picture. This is the reason why I'm so passionate about this. My wife and I, we have three boys, Micah, Jack, and Judah, nine, seven, and five years old. And here's the heart of it for me, is I don't have any desire for them to just hold on to their faith. I want them to advance the faith. I want my finish line to be their starting line, my ceiling to be their floor. I believe that their generation is gonna do more in the kingdom of God than we could ever ask or imagine. I'm fearful of the future because I know the way the story ends, but we've gotta be creative in the present if we wanna see the kingdom of God break in right now. And so as we come into this session, I just wanna pray over you. Uh, I wanna invite you to stand to your feet. I just wanna pray a prayer blessing over us as we start this really heavy conversation that's gonna end with all sorts of promise. King Jesus, we love you, and we declare that we know the way the story ends. We pray that you would give us the eyes to see what is happening in our times, but to not be paralyzed by it and to not fear it, but, be to, but to be motivated in love and courage and passion and strength and clarity, God, to know what to do about it. God, teach us how to follow you in the moments that you put us in. God, thank you for these leaders. God, thank you for such a time as this that you've put them not just on planet earth, but in their churches and in their cities and in their neighborhoods and in their families. God, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our ears? Would you help us to see? Would you fill us with the life and the peace of the Spirit of God within us? In Jesus, would you lead us? You're our Lord. You're our King. You're our leader. Would you show us how to do this? In the name of Jesus, we pray and give thanks. Amen. You can be seated.
3: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I hate to give you the bad news, but I'm going to give you the bad news today. So uh, my name is Brooke Hemple. I work for a company called Barna Group, and we have been tracking faith trends in our country and to some degree around the world for over 30 years. Um, so we've been kind of watching what's happening with the spiritual nature of of our country, of the church, and how culture is intersecting with faith. Um, and so what I'm gonna do is lay out this context of cultural Christianity today. And I will just give you the um, you know, warning that this is gonna be a little rough, but there's good news at the end. So bear with me, take a deep breath. Um, our first slide, these are empty pews because it's true. There are so many churches at this moment Um, that are closing. In fact, one just down the street from me the other day voted to close its doors. It's a wonderful historic community that is no longer relevant. And so it's really about this trend line. Um, There's been a lot in the news even the last couple of weeks about this. Um, What is a Christian, right? So if you think of naming yourself a Christian, would you say you're a Christian? People used to say yes all the time. Obviously, they had different interpretations of what that meant, and they didn't always live it out. But there's a rapid decline um, because you can see this, this self-identification with Christian, uh, the blue line at the top, 81%, has quickly dropped to 74% because it's not important, to say that I'm a Christian anymore. Our culture says that's not something that we really value. And so people who maybe followed along with this for a long time because their family um, was Christian or maybe their grandparents practiced, they kind of said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but it really wasn't changing their heart. Well, now they're free to let go of that. So what you see in the red line at the bottom, the counter trend to Christians saying, or people saying I'm a Christian is I'm none. I'm nothing. This is not relevant to me. And this is the total U.S. population. So if 21% of U.S. adults, it's a little higher than that actually in 2019 and 2020, um, would say that they are nothing, atheist, diagnostic, or more commonly just none, it's actually way higher when we start to look at younger generations, which we'll see in just a minute. But I, I study statistics, I study demographics. One thing we know about averages is they change really slowly over time. That doesn't look like a really steep decline, but it's huge. We never see that kind of change so quickly. So what's happened is our country has hit a tipping point where it's totally fine to say, like, religion is not a thing. I just live in the here and now. I'm just concerned about my world right now. And our country has really adopted that, and we see that um, in the way people are living out their lives day to day. So looking at the next slide, what does that mean for followers of Jesus? Well, we interestingly, going back to 2003, um, had a not terribly dissimilar number of people saying they claimed a faith in Jesus, about two-thirds of the U.S. population. It kind of rose for a while, right? Because they got pulled in by some really great messages that were speaking to their hearts, but then they sat in the pews and they just took it all in, they just consumed it, and they didn't do anything with it and it didn't change their hearts. So many, many have walked away, and you see those numbers dropping really precipitously over the last decade of people who would say that they have a faith in Jesus. Again, those are huge numbers. When you're tracking just averages, statistical averages, you don't usually see that kind of decline. So basically, King Jesus is not king in so many Christian lives. Right? That's what we're kind of seeing in our data, and it continues to change. Let's look at the next slide, which shows us by generation what's going on. Because really, when you look at the next generation, that's where you see where we're going, right? Um, so you see baby boomers here, you've got 80% of them claiming to be Christian, and you follow the trends down by generation, and then Gen Z, who are kind of tw- early 20 somethings and below our teens, only 59% say that they're Christian. And the huge rise in that red number, 34% say they're atheist, agnostic, or none. And interestingly, when we did this study um, about two years ago, we saw this big jump in the number of them who are willing to actually say that they're atheist. Because for a long time, it was around six, seven percent. And all of a sudden, boom, like I don't have a problem saying there is no God. Because I live in a world where that's not valued. And I live in a world where I don't see lives transformed. So I don't know if I believe this. All right. So let's double click on Gen Z for a second and look at a few trends um, that we noticed when we did this deep dive of teens at the time about two years ago. Uh, so this is Gen Z. Um, they were born 1999 or uh, after that. So they are our current day, like early 20s and teens. Um, let's look at this next slide because this is one of the things that really defines uh, what is shaping their beliefs. Science. So it used to be, if you look at that bottom line, that people would say, you know, I can believe in the Bible and all that it tells me, and I can believe in science and what I learn from science, and I see them as complementary. Like, I understand how God's scripture reveals something, and then we see it in the natural world, and that's, that's something that kind of fits alongside itself to me, right? But increasingly over time, science has become faith. For the younger generation. So, millennials and Gen Z increasingly say not only do I see conflict between science and the Bible, I want to go with science. So, the next slide will show you what we heard directly from the mouths of some of our Gen Zs. We did some folks groups with teens. And this was in a Christian teen focus group. Most of these students went to Christian schools, and this was one who didn't. He went to a public school. And he said, yeah, the stuff we learn in school today, like evolution, how the world came to be, it makes you question, because they're scientists. They study this every day, i.e., they're like God. They know stuff, right? He says, I, I've learned all these things about God, but I can't ignore that this thing is in my head. And because culture around me is telling me, That science is actually where truth is, not that God is where truth is, right? So this is kind of infiltrating the next, well, actually, to be fair, I mean, my generation, Gen X, like this is what I learned growing up in school, um, and I came to Christ much older in life, and similarly had no idea that science was not God. Um, So, but this is just more prevalent in our youngest generation. So increasingly, we're seeing this science is a real big stumbling block, and it causes them to question the reality of God, to question if this is even relevant in their lives. Let's look at morality. They're also struggling to see that there is some broader sense of what is morally good in the world. Um, These are people that strongly agree with these statements. There's also people who just say, I agree, so you don't have to strongly agree. What's morally right and wrong changes over time based on society or depends on what an individual believes. In other words, there is no absolute truth. There's only relative truth. And you see that growing. You see this line changing by generation and we've been tracking it over time. It's growing. What you believe... Is what you believe. What I believe is what I believe. You do you. You just do you, right? So you become the arbiter of truth. Next slide. Also in the area of gender. What is gender? 33% of young people, 20 and younger at this time, said gender is actually how you feel. It's not the sex you were born with. That is a huge, huge stumbling block for this generation. They cannot make sense of what Scripture tells us and what the world tells them. They really need to understand. They need to wrestle with the world and wrestle with how God defines the world, right? They, they need help kind of guiding through that culture. Uh, last quote from someone in Gen Z. So this is not a Christian. Um, this is a, a non-Christian focus group participant said, hey, there's no such thing as truth. There are facts. Facts are things I can know are true. But truth, it can always change, All right? So you see, if you're evaluating Christianity, if you're evaluating scripture through that lens, like it's just a book, that some people wrote and it's really not relevant to me today. Because what's really relevant to me today, next slide is happiness. Half of young people say my main goal, all of my goal in life is just to be happy. It's all about me. And that again has been growing over the years. We've tracked this. We've seen like this desire for happiness as the ultimate in people's lives. But happiness is different than joy. And there is a huge, huge felt need here, which I, this is where I see the hope, uh, which is there's a lack of joy and there's a lack of hope in this generation because there's nothing to pin it to. If I'm the ultimate goal of my life, then there's nothing bigger and better than my experience. So if I don't have a king who's greater than me, how am I gonna find hope in life, right? So this is where the hope comes in for us, um, for the next generation. One more slide on this. We actually asked youth pastors what they would assess separately before we did the, the study with teens as the biggest uh, issues facing this next generation. They basically nailed all those things. Um, they said technology and social media have shaped the way that they think about things. They've shaped the way they interact with others. They don't have good deep relationships that can transform them. They have this sense of spiritual moral relativism. They have questions about gender sexuality. And they have this consumerist mindset. Like, I'm just going to get what I need and then I'm done. Right? And it's not leading to disciples that are resilient. So a couple more things I want to show you from a generation a little older. So that was Gen Z. Now we're looking at millennials, basically. Um, 18 to 35 is this particular study. This is a study we did around the world, but it pretty much is the same in the U.S. as it is around the world, which is interesting because it tells us there's a global culture here at play. This is a really connected generation. So how are they connected? Next slide. They're connected to events around the world. 77% say that. Or they feel connected to people around the world. More than half say that but then they don't have real relationships. So a third, say, I feel deeply cared for by people around me, or I have someone who believes in me. So next slide. This generation, this 18 to 35, and it's even more so as you go into teens, feels so connected to the world and disconnected from people around them. And that is where we're missing the boat on discipleship. Because that's where it comes in. You can't change this generation by just speaking loudly and having it reverberate across culture. It's one by one. You've got to change these hearts one by one. Last slide. We've, du- we've dubbed this digital Babylon, right? This is, this is a time of exiles. There are some faithful few, and they're resilient. Um, that is the good news. There's a small percentage of U.S. Uh, Christian teens who are very resilient, and young adults, who are very resilient but they live in a really accelerated complex culture and it's hard. So they need help becoming disciples and being disciple makers so that that light can spread because that light shines brightest in the darkness. So next, we're gonna hear some stories about, um, gosh, what God can do and how light can shine. I'm gonna send you on to this next video. Thank you.
4: Yes, good morning, good morning. I'm coming from Africa, so greeting is very important for us, you know, because we need to greet so that we can create a relationship. We really want to thank the Lord for what God is doing around the world. You know, I know that there are bad news and there are good news. You know, in the days of Jesus, there was still bad news, but there was a good news and Jesus was the good news. And I'm here today to share with you on obedience-based discipleship and what God is doing around the world take into cognizance what God is doing in Sierra Leone and beyond. You know, I want you to know that any discipleship where obedience is not the foundation, it's not the roots, we can't call that discipleship. Any discipleship that obedience is not the foundation, then it is not discipleship at all. You see, because Jesus himself told us what we are supposed to do in Matthew 28. Verse 19 to 20, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, all tribes, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And also in John fourteen fifteen, Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, keep my commandment. So for us, we realize that discipleship is, is a way, it's out of love. Falling in love with Jesus and following Jesus and obeying his words out of love is a cause and effect. If you love something, you just obey. You do it because you love it. You don't argue about it because you love it. And so discipleship for us is really coming from the heart of love. Just loving Jesus, loving his words, and just trying to follow Jesus. It is also very important that For us, as we talk about discipleship, as leaders, we try to model it. We model it so that the people can see. And when they see it, we are able to coach them and train them. And so they are able to follow what God is doing. And it is very important for all of us to know that discipleship is not about pointing to your church, pointing to your denomination. The first priority in discipleship is to really point to Jesus. Point the people to Jesus. coach them and, and, and disciple them. And also it's important for you to know that when we do discipleship, it's not about policing people. We try to get better together. How can we get better together? We come alongside with them. So if they fail to obey, we don't police them. We just encourage them and ask them, how can I help you to get better at what you are doing? You know, because we are not in the world of policing people, but we want to help them grow and be matured and fall in love with Jesus. And that is why for us, discipleship, we try to make it very simple. It's simple, it's scalable, and it's sustainable. Something that any man can do without us. Because it's not about us, it's about him. And about his kingdom. That is what is important. And so that's what we have done in our own context. That's what obedience looks like. And we do it in such a way that we clearly understand that in the process of doing it, there will be failure. Somebody might fail. We have the understanding. But you know what? Like a good soldier, when you go out to war, you don't want to leave the wounded soldier there. You want to bring him up and resuscitate that soldier and then send him back into the field. And that's what we do. And as a result today, God has been so faithful in touching lives, the most unlikely people have become not only disciples, but also disciple makers. You know, if you go and observe the movement, you find all type of people in the movement. you find people who are former rebels, who are fighting. They, are, have, they have become disciples, they are also making disciples. you find soldiers who were former soldiers, and some of them, the present current soldiers, military people, making disciples. you find policemen, people in the police. Making disciples and also, you know, they are disciples. You find carpenters, fishermen, farmers, drivers, every area of life. In the movement for us, you are first a disciple and a disciple maker before you are any other thing. So you meet a driver, he will tell you, I'm a disciple and a disciple maker and I am a driver. You meet somebody who's a teacher, he say, I'm a disciple and a disciple maker and I am a teacher. So for us, it is something that we have tried to encourage and coach and by the leading of the Holy Spirit to bring people along to fall in love with Jesus and obey Jesus. And God has been very faithful to give the results that we are seeing today, not only in Sierra Leone, but in other countries, that we are also training and coaching people as we continue to do. And it's important for you to know that we are targeting, especially, you know, Muslims and African traditional religionists. And we are seeing people from the Islamic faith almost every week come to know Jesus and becoming disciples of Jesus. I, I want you to know that we have seen people who were against the church, who oppose the church. Some people who denied Jesus, who, has, who have even killed other people, we have seen them today fall in love with Jesus, become disciples, and they are making other disciples. People who have been persecuted today, they are also being persecuted for the faith that they persecuted. And some of them, I asked them, are you going to give up? They said, we will not give up because we found Jesus. Let me give you some few illustrations. One of the stories, is a story about the city where we stay, we decided to do a survey and we realized that there were a lot of drug addicts and we call them ports, you know, back home. Areas where people go and smoke and take drugs. So we did a research and we realized there's so many of these ports, drug place around the city. So we went to the police station and we took a letter from the police to permit us so that we can go in and and be able to bring Jesus to them, disciple them where they are. Where they are, meet them, are, disciple them, and then so that they can also have a transforming life. The police gave us; we had a memorandum of understanding with the police, and so we, I, had to train and coach some young people, and so we went out to this one of the places. It's called Lions. The place is called Lions because this is one of the oldest drug ports in that city. And you know what is interesting? We learned from them that they even have an annual Thanksgiving. Everyone that has gone through, that has been taking drugs, that went through lions, that will come back once a year to have a Thanksgiving. So it is very interesting. So we went there. I told my guys, we have to be like them, dressed like them. In the Old Testament, it is come and be like us. In the New Testament, go and be like them. So we dressed like just young people who dress. We put on, you know, T-shirts, just the way they are. And we went in there and we started talking to them. We created relationship. Let me tell you, by the way, the gospel flies best on the wings of relationship. You know, we are living in a world where everybody's with his phone. We are not creating relationship and we are not even trying to go out of our comfort zone to create relationship. So it will be difficult to really make disciples outside the church. So we went out to them and we became friends. And after a few weeks, we came with music, we had food, and we all started to share the food together. At the end of the food sharing, the leader of this group, you know, they take, they are very, they they have authority and they respect authority. And the, the leader said, we want to join you in the church this Sunday. Well, we did not really want them to come, but he insisted. He insisted. I want to say, okay, you know, so come. So we had to take three buses to bring them. Some of them came, they could hardly stand because they had this drug on them. But we received them and there was worship. And at some point while the worship was going on, they wrote a short note to me. And they said, we want to sing a song. Well, this is God's church. This is God's gathering. Come and sing. This is his house. It's for everyone. And these guys came up and they sang a song. That song we have even put on an album. And the title of the song is that we are the church. The pews are not the church. This building is not the church. We, they are, we are the church. The theology of the song was so sound. At the end of the day, 10 of them said, we want to be trained. Because we don't want to want to be disciple makers, we want to be church planters. And we trained them. And I want you to know today, these guys are planting churches all over the place. In fact, one of them... One of them planted a church. The place is called New England. He planted a church. He died during the Ebola because he volunteered to serve with some medical team, and he got Ebola, and he died. But the church is still there. These guys are going to difficult places. And because of that... What I did was that I brought all of these guys from this background together and I said, now that you are fallen in love with Jesus, you have become disciples and you are making disciples, I want you to do something. I want you to help other people do the same. And we had a group and they started training the best criminals, the best people, the best criminal people with the best criminal minds. They started discipling them. And that has a cascading effect today has a cascading effect of people from that background being saved. Let me tell you, there's nothing that God cannot do. With him, all things are possible. I want to end here by saying something to you. I know that, you know, some people say this cannot work here. It's impossible. But if you're serving the God of impossibility, then it can happen here. I want you to know it can happen here. Because he's a God of the the world. Every area, God can do great things. I have seen the worst people become disciple makers and making disciples. And if he has done that with rebels, with ex-soldiers, with people who have killed other people, he can do it in this nation. Let me tell you, all you need to do, take out a paper, write one area that you need to be obedient on. One. And write your name underneath that. And choose that I'm going to be obedient in this area. Write your name. Get a body. get a friend who will join you in doing this. If the friend fails, don't police the friend. Just tell the friend, how can we do this together? How can we get better together? I've realized from this culture, Nike has a slogan. Just do it. Just do it. Don't theologize it. Don't argue about it. Just do it. One step at a time. We also realize that in this culture, you have a game that says Simon Says. Touch your head, Simon Says, touch your knee. You know, if you're not obedient, there are times you will be touching your knees and you're supposed to touch your head. you miss it. If you can do Simon Says, then you can do a simple, obedient-based discipleship. <laughs> so I challenge you. This is not a far-away story. This is God's story. It's a Jesus style of discipleship. It's very simple. It's scalable. It's sustainable. Even a young child can do it. We have made it so complex. But I encourage you today, let's make it very simple, as Jesus did. Because I know, I have this confidence, that I am not going to die until I see movements in America. I I believe it in my heart. I believe it in my spirit that I will be alive. You will be alive to see movement. All these statistics they have given us, by faith we are believing that God will turn it around to the glory and the honor of his name. That is my belief. That is what I believe. And I know it will happen. Do you believe that too? If you believe, let us pray. Father, we want to thank you. We honor you and we bless you. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. God will pray that your word will reign in this land with power again. Your word will reign. Father, we pray that we will step out of the way and allow the Holy Spirit to move in a mighty way in our churches. To move in a powerful way, God. Father, we have been standing in the way. We have been playing the role of the Holy Spirit. Father, but we pray after this conference, you will allow you to move in a new way. Give us a fresh anointing. God, for the challenges that that is ahead of us. We thank you, we bless you. With you, all things are possible. Father, we thank you for the thousands and millions that you are going to bring to you, that are going to become disciples and disciple makers. Thank you, God, for churches that are going to multiply in this nation. And Father, we promise you, When you have done this through us, we promise you, we will not touch your glory. All glory belongs to you. All honor belongs to you. And all praise belongs to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.
0: Y'all, come on, somebody.
5: (laughs) Come on, somebody. Man, can we give it up for Shadon K. Dave and Brooks one more time, please? <laughs> Woo! Hey, I'm backstage, like, I'm ready to go make some disciples.
3: <laughs> Let's go.
5: Man, I'm so excited. Uh, just what all the Lord is doing already. So, up until this point, would you agree with me that we've had some very valuable insights for disciple making? Would you agree up until this point? My goodness, my goodness. So uh, we think about contextualizing this, right? uh, Taking this back home, right? We already have our own discipleship strategies, right? We have our own discipleship pathways. Um, But perhaps uh, in this video, I would love to just show you how to not make a disciple. Watch this.
6: Sure. I'm positive. Go. So I go now. Now. I don't. Is the music? Good evening. It's not evening. Good afternoon. It's not afternoon. Good morning. Just say hello. Hello. I'm Whitman Biddleford, and if you're watching this video, then you are on your way to starting a mega church. Congratulations. You're in for quite a ride, and I'm here today to give you 15 pieces of advice. Nope. Nine pieces of advice. Whoa. Three pieces of advice That's it. to ensure that you will have a successful mega church. Now I know what you're thinking. How do we get people invested? How do we get them involved? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. Donuts, French vanilla creamer, and a youth pastor that dresses like a hipster. Whitney, get to the substance. They want substance. Substance? Substance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good... Thank you, Larry. Don't Larry. Say my that's why he's the producer. Don't say my name. That's Larry. That's... The producer. So what I would suggest for your megachurch is try to get some good music to start off. Maybe someone like Slash from Guns N' Roses or Christina Aguilera to commit to maybe three to six years of your first services. But uh, if you're going to have them, you're going to need more services. That's for sure. Right, Larry? Don't I would say add more services. A 3 a.m., a 4 a.m., a 5.15, a 6.45, a 7.30, 8.45, a, 7 8 a 9.82, an 11.58, and a 16.90. Tim Tebow, you get Tim Tebow. I mean, you can't get any better than Tim Tebow, can you? I mean, you get here's what you do you get Tim Tebow to walk away from the SEC desk and just become your lead pastor. <laughs> he's speaking, he's talking, and you don't know what and he's and all of a sudden he scans and scans. He's looking and looking, looking 800 yards down the field. He sees himself and he takes his Bible and he hurls. He's left-handed. He hurls it down the field to himself and he catches it, pulls it in, into the pulpit for six, and it's Tebow time.
1: You don't throw the Bible, Larry.
6: It's Tebow time. That's the kind of thing you need for a mega church. And I need some more coffee, and I need another 16 cupcakes.
1: <laughs> there we go. How not to make disciples by focusing on just getting your crowd. Brooke, Dave, and Shadonke, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for sharing yourselves with it. I have my friend Jim Putman up here. Jim's been with us from the very beginning with Discipleship.org, and Jim has a lot of uh, insight and background, and so I told him, I said, we're going to sit down and listen, and the first person I'm going to turn to for reaction, and I know it'll be straight, is Jim Putman. So Jim, give us some reaction. Well, I'm I'm more of a processor, so
5: uh, it's going to take me a little bit here to, uh, you know, we've been talking about for years the problem with the church. And the way things are going and, and the methods that we're using. And so that's, that's why we started what we started. We knew that's where it was at. And, and again, you look at them currently and you see the same trends and you see the same things. Uh, the numbers tell us the same thing. Um, when I think about what both uh, Dave and Shadonke are doing, I think about uh, not just the way they speak, but who they are as individuals, as people. And I think about uh, being both of them being disciple-makers themselves personally, rather than thinking about systems or organizations first. They're disciples first, and when you are a disciple first, and you model that and you live that, people start to come to know Christ, and then it leads to organization and structure needs versus organization and structural needs first, and then somehow that will lead to disciples it starts with these guys understanding a relationship with Jesus, being on mission with Jesus, loving Jesus, loving others. As they do that as individuals, it leads to this organizational structural problem. It leads to, you know, we talk about, we were called to, make, uh, to, to plant churches. We were called to make disciples. And if you do that, it leads to churches. And so I, I think uh, the thing that makes them amazing to me is not the big numbers and the big stuff. It's who they are, life on life. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so that that's the most impressive to me. And so I think about um, they're making disciples of Jesus, it, the obedience based. Jesus said, "You know, he's asked. I think the most important question: What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus didn't answer that. He answered two questions instead to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And then he said something we often miss. He said all the law and the prophets, all the scriptures, hang on those two commands. Mm -hmm. Every every act of obedience is an act of loving God, loving others, loving yourself as God would have you love yourself. And when that happens, when you're doing that life on life, it leads to transformation.
1: That's good. You know, if you're uh, with us for the first time, for our national disciple making forum, it's called a forum for a reason, and the reason is that we want to uh, spur on and be a catalyst for disciple making conversations. Because Jesus' method of disciple making uh, in the Bible is in front of us; it's uh, something that we can model on and replicate. But in terms of how it applies in different contexts, is going to have some variability. So conversations are super important around this. Uh, Jim just mentioned uh, that he, because he knows Dave and he knows Shadonke, uh that they are personal disciple makers. Also, Brooke is a disciple maker. In fact, everybody we we invite on the main stage, we we uh, want to make sure they're living out what we call the discipleship lifestyle, being disciples who make disciples. And uh, what Jim's getting at, which uh, I think Dave would, would uh, vouch for, in fact, Dave, in just a second, I'm going to ask you about um, uh, some things that you you shared with me about this forum. But um, we've got to be what we want the people in our ministry, our church, to be. You can't lead where you don't go. You can't teach what you don't know. And you can't give to others what you can't show in your own life. Uh, Mark Twain put it this way. He said, uh, about children with their parents, uh, children uh, have never been very good at listening to their parents, but they never fail to imitate them. Mm-hmm. And so it is true of disciple makers. And I appreciate Jim saying that about Dave. In fact, Dave, i um, not sure where to go with this, but when you and I talked about the first session, it was actually a little bit difficult for you because uh, you have been really focusing for some time now uh, on fasting and praying and focusing on disciple-making. So you're actually full of hope, and uh, for me to ask you to start off was a little bit hard for you, and I'm putting you on the spot,
2: but go ahead and tell us about that. Yeah, you know, Bobby said, can you come and talk about the problem with cultural Christianity? I thought, no, I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> this, you know, and he and I talked on that. I mean, that was basically our conversation. It's was like, no, I don't want to do that, but I love Bobby and uh, and and I love you guys. And I thought, okay, I'll come, I'll come do that. And the reason I said that was because, you know, over the last 10 or 11 years, God has given my wife and I and our team just the amazing privilege. I mean, it feels like a privilege that we've, we get to serve so many young adults from all sorts of different contexts. And, and, you know, large per, percent of our church, 80 or so percent of our church is under the age of 30. And and I look out at, at that group of people, and what I see is a generation just on fire for Jesus. Yeah. Like last night, you know, we were we were with our church. We we meet and rented out bars and music venues around the city. And for two hours last night, we baptized people in this bar. And I'm telling you, I can't. I don't know how to describe it. It was just insane. I mean, people dancing and singing and worshiping and and um, coming to the Lord and. And I see the challenge in culture, which is very, very real. So this isn't blinders to the culture. But I really do believe what Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 30 is really true. He tells the story or the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And um, he makes this really phenomenal. Of course, it's phenomenal. as Jesus. But he makes this statement that's just stuck with me. He's talking about the last days. And he's talking about wickedness and righteousness. And he says, let them grow together until the end. Mm-hmm. He says, in other words, this is the way it's going to play out. The world's going to get better at sinning, but the church is going to get better at walking in righteousness. Yeah. And that's the reality. That's the reality that King Jesus has said. Is that's, and, and so it's not that we ignore. Uh, in fact, we have to engage it very, very seriously. But I look and I go, okay, we're seeing what Jesus said is happening. People are getting better at sinning, so we as disciple-makers should get more exciting. excited thinking, we're about to reap the greatest harvest of righteousness the world has ever seen, because that's what Jesus has said. And I loved what you were praying, Shadonke, because I'm going, man, I, I do not want to die without seeing disciple-making movements all over this country. And man, I'm so pumped about what God's doing there, and I'm praying, God, would you do it here as well. And so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful, although it is tough to see, I mean, Exactly what's going on. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's
1: come back, Brooke, uh, to the stats you were saying, and we really appreciate you doing that. And uh, as Brooke mentioned, I did tell her, uh, I did ask her to share the bad news. Uh, so thank you for doing that with us. Um, and in fact, um, it's really easy with uh, being surrounded by like Dave Clayton, Shanonke Jim, with what they're doing for some of us in disciple-making circles to actually have an optimism but the reality is, this is pretty significant, what's happening in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how concerned should people out there be about what's happening? Like oh. if you were to say, kind of at a gut level as a mother and as a right. researcher.
3: Yeah, I mean, that, as, a, as a mom is where my blood pressure starts to rise. Because these are my kids, right, who are, who are growing up in this culture. Um, and you cannot bubble wrap them. Um, it just it 's not enough there's no, that 's not how God designed it anyway. Your video is funny because it 's true so if we 're f- if we 're creating church that 's all about fun and it 's all about just being together, but it 's not about growing and changing that 's not attractive to this world so the world th- there's great fun out there. The world is full of fun things to do, um, full of entertainment, full of things to pursue. And and so what are we doing in the church that counterbalances that? Um, so I, I look at the world around us and I think, okay, I have to be super intentional with everything I do with my kids or in my own relationships, right? Um, because we're in this huge struggle because we are in the world on a day-to-day basis. We are We are surrounded by this culture that it's like... Um, it's like you know being in a cup of tea, and if there's a tea bag in the cup of tea, like you're gonna get it on you, right? Yeah, so we're yeah. in it every day. Yeah. So if we're not intentional with growing our own faith and constantly just reexamining our hearts yeah. and constantly feeding um, just our, our soul, and then also sharing that with the next generation, it will not—or or not even next generation, but peers and whoever else is in our lives—it um, will not be enough to sustain through that cultural pressure that's happening. Um, so I always think, uh, you know, about youth groups, right? So I didn't grow up in, in youth group environments. I actually think I, I was exposed to them as a non-Christian, and I was like, well, that's just like, that's fun, but I got other places to have fun. Like, I don't need to go there for yeah. fun. Yeah. So if you look at the youth group, a typical youth group environment, there's a lot that's fun, and I'm not saying that's bad, but if that's all there is... Yeah. The world can go somewhere else to get fun. They yeah. don't need a piece of party. They need to meet Jesus.
1: Okay, just I, I got I, I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing I'm struggling with, because like uh, when Brooke and I talked, she pointed me to this book, Faith for Exiles, which then I read, yes. and in it it talks about uh, in terms of just sheer discipleship. Yeah. Like if you think of your kids, for every one hour you have, there's 20 hours yeah. of the world discipling our kids. And I'm like, well, duh, but then when we look around the country, there is still this attraction to let's big builder like build these megachurches. And by the way, we're not opposed to mega churches, a couple of these guys up here lead them. But if all it is is the Sunday morning crowd, right, and so many people, if that's their goal, it's just to accumulate more people. My friend Todd Wilson calls these level three churches where it's just more buildings, bucks bodies, you know, like let's get them all together and let's, you know, we got to feed the beast of keeping them happy and making them feel good and inspired on Sunday morning. But that's not going to cut it.
3: No. And and so for two reasons, one is you put yourself in a bubble on Sunday morning and you're not equipped for Monday through Saturday out in the world because you haven't kind of looked at that and and touched that as part of your experience of, of knowing Jesus. And two is the world out there is less and less interested in coming inside. It is completely irrelevant. They're not interested in coming inside your programs. If we turn the church inside out and we are ascending kind of people and we are out meeting our neighbors and being in the world and living a faith that is outwardly in our workplaces and wherever we are, um, that's where people are going to meet Jesus they're not gonna meet him inside the building. I mean, it it can happen, but we have a culture now that says there's no pressure to go to church. There's nothing that you need there. Well,
1: and they also bring their pressures into the church. For sure. Speaking as a pastor, they bring their pressures. (laughs) They wanna come and they want you to, you said they wanna be happy. Right. Like, it's a huge thing. That translates in, they want us to inspire them and in many ways not confront them yeah. with the claims of King Jesus, mm-hmm. but to find a way to just make them happier and to get their shot of inspiration mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the week.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's not going to cut it. It's not enough to produce resilient faith. So you talked about faith for exiles. One of the things is there's this whole formula we discovered of looking at young people who grew up in the church and then where'd they go? And well over half of them walk away. It's true. It's true. Um, and then there's a portion, about four to 10, who stay. Um, and then of those, really, there's only 10% of these people who grew up in the church who become what we call resilient. And they had these really clear dimensions. So they had deep relationships. And those are the sorts of relationships that help so them to meet really Jesus, So it's really discipling right? relationships. It's discipling relationships. So she's relationships. saying 10,
1: only 10% of the kids are leaving our churches with a resilient faith. Right. And okay, a faith that
3: lasts, a faith that makes them, you know, a, a vibrant follower of Jesus, right? So it's these, these rela- relationships, and not just with peers, it's with adults. So when they are a teen, they've got some adult who's feeding into their lives. That's really important. Um, and two, that they've got an experience of Jesus. They don't just read about him or think about him in a certain way, they have experienced and continue to experience Jesus, right? Um, they feel called to what they're doing, there's a vocational aspect. Um, And they see how that connects with God and his mission for his kingdom, not just their lives. Um, They live their lives outwardly, and they have this sense of cultural discernment. Ah, I know that the world is different. And I want to be in it, but I want to be different. And I can discern how to do that, right? So those were factors that were really persistent in this 10% who's got this very vibrant faith. And it is, it's like what you described. I mean, this resilient generation is on fire. And it's so exciting because they're standing in contrast, right? If you're going to choose faith in the youngest generation today you better really love it. You're not going to choose it just because it's what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Right? You're choosing it because you believe it and you live it and you love it. And so that's actually super exciting yeah. and encouraging.
1: I think uh, when I finished the book, I, I thought to myself, in fact, uh, one of my friends talked to me, he said, really, nothing's changed. Jesus-style disciple-making is what is really being described here. And Jesus-style disciple-making is what we've got to plead with everyone mm-hmm. to focus upon. So Shidonke, I want to ask you a question. By the way, uh, these folks are here for the next two days. We're going to have lots of sessions with lots of people for you to follow up with lots of the implications of this, from what Jim's doing to what Dave's doing, Shidonke. But Shidonke, I want to ask you this. I've asked you this uh, in, in uh, various places before. But if somebody's here and they're saying, okay, where do I start? Like, how do I wrap my mind around the implications for me of what this guy Shidonke is saying about these on-fire Holy Spirit disciple-making movements? Where should I
4: start? I think one of the things we are really missing is that um, <clears throat> in this generation, we have the corporate mindsets. A lot of people just try to look at the corporate world, the success in the corporate world, how they're doing things, and they take that thing and bring it into the church. Well, that is for the corporate world. But you are in God's business, and you have to do things by his own rule and by his own book. And when you look at doing things by his book, it really starts from the place of prayer. The church has to go back to the place of prayer. So it's not management first? No, no, no. We have to start from prayer. Yeah, we have turned things upside down. That's the problem. You know, we start from the simple thing, going, taking the church back to the place of prayer, seeking the Lord, hearing from God. What is God saying for us as a church? You know, we seek the face of God. Jesus did that. I mean, before he started his ministry, he prayed. He prayed every day in the morning. He prayed daily. He prayed so much that his disciples asked him, Master, teach us how to pray. You know, every day he did that. Jesus prayed before even he did some miracles. His first word on the, even the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed first. He told his disciples, pray with me, watch with me. He did not say, fight with me. He said, pray with me. And when he was on the cross, his first word on the cross was prayer. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. His last word on the cross was prayer. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, the issue here is that we have the praying Jesus We can't be disciples without prayer and fasting. You know, we have to fast. It's not an Old Testament thing. Science proves that fasting is important. Let's say we take it from a scientific point of view. We have to fast. Start small to end big. I'm not saying begin big. Start with two hours fasting. Three hours. Four hours. Six hours. You can start prayer with 10 minutes every day. Just start 10 minutes. Then move it to 30 minutes. Then move it to 40 minutes. The Lord will give you the strength. And the other thing that is important, we can't do this work without the Holy Spirit. I don't care what theology you have studied. I don't care the doctrine you stand on. But if Jesus, if you want to do things the Jesus way, the Holy Spirit has a role to play. That is why he told his disciples, it's good for me to go. Because when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. He wanted to multiply himself in millions of people at the same time. But what we have done today, we have taken the Holy Spirit away from the church and we are sitting in the place of the Holy Spirit with our theological knowledge. So that is our problem. And our knowledge is just, is, is, is small. We just have, we can only see so far. He's all-knowing God. He knows everything. He knows the end before the beginning and the beginning before the end. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. We can't do this without the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not do it without the Holy Spirit. He said, I am the Father I one. As you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So he was connected with the Father. There was a relationship with the community of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But today, we are relying on our head knowledge. Most of us, we are saving the head, but we are not saving the heart. We have a lot of memory verses and theology in the head, but in the heart, there's nothing. And so it's not going to work. And so the issue is that the thing that we are doing is the result we are going to get. And that's the result we are getting today. But my hope is that, you are talking about the man. Jesus said, the man planted his field and he went to sleep. And when he went to sleep, the wicked one came and planted the weeds. The weed. Now the issue here is that, the problem is that we have gone to sleep. So the wicked one is taking over. I think the issue here is that we are not trying to take back. Some people say, let's take back. No, we are not taking. I mean, some people say, let's take over. We are taking back what really belongs to us. Mm. That's what the church should do. Take back. Go to the place of prayer. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Spend time, hours in the Word of God. Most of us don't read the Bible. We just read the, have some references. Spend time, hours in the Bible. Search the Bible. Make this thing very simple so that the ordinary man can use it. It's not from professionals. Simple thing. And then we don't do discipleship out of, you know, I don't do it out of duty. It's not out of duty because I have to do this. It's not out of reward. If I do it, I will have some benefits. You know, we don't do it out of fear. If I don't do it, I'm going to be punished. This is something you do out of love. It flows out of the heart. And I want to promise anyone here that is, listen. If you want to go far, go alone. But if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. Find people of like-mindedness who walk alongside with you. Be very intentional. No apology for what we are doing. We are making disciples. We don't apologize. We have to be intentional. And when we rely on God, he has the power to bring the results. Remember, none of us in this hall don't bring the increase. You don't bring the increase. In true discipleship, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, God brought the increase. God is the one who brings genuine increase. So it's a divine partnership, your own part and God's own part. Don't be concerned about God's own part, just do your own part. Because God is faithful, He will always do His part. I think that's what we need. We need to go back to prayer. We need to go back to the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to spend time in the Word of God. When we do that, our Father in heaven, when we ask, He's going to do it. When we seek, we'll find. When we knock, the door.
0: That's it for today's episode. Make sure to check out the discipleship.org collective and get your free membership to tons of free resources. There's a premium version too. Check it out at discipleship.org slash collective. Thanks for listening. Until next time.